This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And I heard you say it. You took my line. I was going to say, Claudette, do you like pea soup? (laughs) And you know, I do want to credit Linda Swain for mentioning to me earlier that the the fog is thick as pea soup. (laughs) (laughs) It is uh, wicked. Wicked. Um, At least in this part of the province. I don't know what it's like right across all corners, but wow. Even driving in this morning, Claudette, I found there were certain areas where, okay, I can see five or six car lengths, and then all of a sudden I can see no car lengths. Yeah, it just comes upon you all yep. of a sudden. Yep. Uh, anyway, uh, be careful out there is all I got to say, and you know this time of year, I hate to say it, but the moose are on the go. Yeah, they right? are. We've been having calls about that. You know, not to, not today, this afternoon, but yeah. Yeah, so just be careful. Keep your speeds down. You just don't know in this kind of weather, and I mean, how many times have you done it? I've done it. I've, uh, you know traveling on Pitts Memorial, heading towards the Trans-Canada and go to turn off on Pitts and I realize I'm in CBS. Yeah, I've taken the wrong ramp before. Yep. It's that bad sometimes. Because you, you, you just lose your, yep. um, whatever word I'm looking for, but your bearings. Yeah, all the landmarks that you're used to, you know. <laughs> yeah, there, there are no landmarks they're in the fog. Gone. Yeah, they're completely uh, Somebody gone. said to me this morning, you know, there's a big uh, cruise ship in town. I said, well, good luck to them. <laughs> Oh, how disheartening Ladies and gentlemen, St. John's, Newfoundland. Okay. (laughs) Whatever. When are we going back? I believe you. (laughs) And we're where again? Anyway. Um, Well, there's some good news in the news today. The idled St. Lawrence Florist Bar Mine has a new buyer, breathing new hope and optimism into the Buren Peninsula region. And uh, VOCM's Brian Callahan had this report. We used it in our news, but I'm just going to remind you of some of the details here. The court approved the sale this morning, erasing more than a year of stress and uncertainty over the future of the mine and its roughly 250 workers. The identity of the buyer and the sale price remain sealed by the court, at least until the transaction closes, which is expected to happen on Friday. All parties and lenders, including the provincial government, which has about $20 million tied up in the business, support the sale, largely based on the benefits as opposed to losses for everyone, including the community, if it fails. But there's also the acknowledged potential value of the mine and the floor spar mineral itself, which is in demand around the world in the manufacture of aluminum, insulation, steel and refrigerants, not to mention direct access to international shipping lanes. This was the second kick at the can to save the mine after an initial sale fell through last fall, moving it from warm to cold idle. Work now begins to close the deal by Friday and ramp up the operation, as well as pay back secured creditors still owed money by the former Canada floor spare. Brian Callahan, VOCM, Local News Now. So that's the news, and thanks to Brian Callahan for uh, getting that out of the courts today. And as you can recall, the closure of the Flores Power Mine, not once but twice, had a devastating impact on the town of St. Lawrence, which was pinning its hopes on its success. Canada Flores Power ran into some serious financial trouble, as we know, and the mine was put up for sale. A previous attempt at a deal to restart the mine fell through last year when the successful bidder failed to meet payment deadlines. It's 
It's been a roller coaster ride ever since for the people of St. Lawrence and surrounding area who have been anxiously watching and waiting to see if the mine could see new life under a new owner. Well, St. Lawrence Mayor Kevin Pittman joins me now for reaction. Mayor Pittman, well, this is a a, a, a good day. <laughs> Well, it's something to be optimistic about, Linda. For certain. So what do you know about this, this new deal, then? Uh, about as much as you guys have reported on VOCM or I've heard from CBC. <laughs> so not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Um, uh, we, knew, we knew the court date was today. Uh, we don't know who the owner, the new owner is, and apparently that's been sealed at this point. And we've been told that the sale should be finalized on Friday. So we're optimistic at this point and hopeful that our, you know, that the mine is going to be reactivated and our people get back to work. But at this point, we know very little. What has this um, last little while been like for the town, uh, you know, since uh, the, you know, the, the closure of the mine? Well, the town's been on a, on a wait and see. Some people, as I said, uh, said before, previously they went uh, way to work. Other people have stayed around, hopefully that the mine was going to reopen. Uh, you know, waiting, sort of waiting it out. And of course, with the downturn in the fishery, that didn't help our community as well. But uh, it's been a little stressful, and uh, I guess uh, right across the board, it's been a little belt tightening. For, for sure. Um, what what kind of potential does this mine have, in your opinion? Well, the, the, we all know, uh, I guess, if you talk to the, uh, any, of the, any of the people who worked in the mine previously or people who worked uh, for the mine, uh, they've all told us how much, that, how much ore is there. Uh, and with the markets the way they are, uh, we're certainly hopeful that uh, we can get this mine up and operational again and uh, and start uh, start being productive and, and keeping uh, not only the residents we have in town, but bringing some of our young people and keeping some of our young people in town as well. And the only floor spar mine in Canada. Yes, uh, the only floor spar mine in Canada, and it might be the only floor spar mine in North America. Uh, I, I think there are some small ones in the States, but... Uh, we are told over and over again that the ore we produce here in St. Lawrence is the highest grade floor spar in the world. Therefore, uh, you know, if you want to buy something, wouldn't you want the best quality that you can possibly get? So uh, what about some of the uh, issues that were raised in, in the first part, you know, some of the infrastructure problems and that sort of thing? Are you hopeful all that can be worked out for, for a new owner? Well, we're hopeful uh, the new owner is coming in, and of course, at this point, we have no idea who it is. Uh, we're hopeful that the company that, that's buying this mine is a is a quality uh, mining company uh, that comes in and they are ready to to tackle it and and not have the problems of uh, previous mining companies. Kevin Pittman, I suppose it's still wait and see to a certain extent, but at least there's, uh, you know, a bit of optimism in the air for people hoping to see that uh, mine reopened. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, hopefully we've gone from uh, cautious optimism to optimism. Put it that way. 
That's St. Lawrence Mayor Ke Kevin Pittman. Uh, coming up, the FFAW heads to Ottawa to ask for support for harvesters and plant workers affected by what it calls the collapse in the crab fishery. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. We're back. And uh, by the way, I forgot to mention off the top of the show, Claudette, thanks for Greg, to Greg for stepping in at the last second yesterday. Oh, yes. really appreciate that. We've all got each other's backs here, so that's really uh, good to know when you uh, get befallen by the old migraine. Uh, well, FFAW President Greg Pretty is heading to Ottawa this week to make a plea for assistance to help those affected by a major market collapse in crab prices. Greg Pretty joins me now. Well, hello, Greg Pretty. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. So, uh, FFAW Unifor launching a new campaign for federal support for those affected by the uh, what you're calling the post-pandemic collapse of the snow crab fishery. What are you looking for? Well, there's a couple of tiers to it, for sure. But uh, let me just start off by saying that uh, the the impact, and I've talked about this for, for about three months now, this is going to have a severe impact on the province. The fishery is up and going. Uh, crab is being landed. Uh, it's being produced. But there's a real concern here uh, that the loss of income for the province and the, the loss of fishing uh, activities, particularly uh, in areas, for example, where we still have ice issues, people have lost their gear, uh, then we're going to need some assistance. It's the largest crab fishery on the planet, and most, about 80% of our harvesters in, in the province depend on snow crab for an income. So when that income is not there because of market conditions, post-pandemic issues, then we're going to need assistance to get through this. I've been saying that for a long time, uh, and now it's time for some action. So I'm, we're off to Ottawa uh, tomorrow morning, to talk to Minister Goody, um, Seamus O'Regan, and uh, the, the Minister of Fisheries in particular, and some of her D ADMs, to talk about a plan that would assist uh, our harvesting uh, members and our processing members to get through this crisis. So for those who don't know, and it's no doubt led to these um, really low prices on the markets today, but how, how much has the crab fishery changed in the last couple of years since COVID? That's, a, that's an interesting question, and I guess it has an interesting answer. The, the, uh, the pandemic uh, incomes, uh, the assistance that the American government gave uh, to their citizens was absolutely incredible. Uh, and right across the board, in fact, for people who, Americans who are living in Canada also got that uh, support. But it, it, in the southeastern uh, United States, it, it caused uh, an increase in buying on, on all uh, issues, but particularly uh, seafood. So seafood was, was a main driver. Uh, that money, uh, pandemic, pandemic money, drove that market uh, to incredible heights. Uh, end result was we got seven sixty five a pound last year uh, for crab. Uh, we had a pretty good, decent year the year before. Uh, but this particular year, uh, we hit the wall. And uh, stuff that was uh, purchased last year at fairly decent prices uh, failed to sell. So we have, in many, many ways, suffered through that right up to now. 
as you can see by the uh, marketplace. We've lost about 71% of our, our income here. So that's significant. Um, and as you know, there are small vessels, medium-sized and large. Um, some of the severest impacts will be on small vessels. For example, people who who finance to get into this fishery over the last couple of years have been particularly hard hit with this uh, because not only do they have their, their business operation to look after, they also have loans on top of that. So it's going to be tough uh, and for harvesters who have small quotas in the 60, 70, a uh, thousand range uh, and even less than that uh, are also going to be hard hit. They're, they're going to find it difficult to to um, to have uh, enough income uh, for unemployment insurance, for example. Uh, similarly, on the um, processing side, um, you know we're two or three weeks in now, and uh, and uh, we've lost six weeks. Uh, so that's going to be there. Could be a pinch here. Uh, at the end of the season with respect to the number of weeks that this uh, uh, fishery can produce. So what we're saying for for the uh, processing workers is that, you know, we need to look at a reduction of hours here so people can qualify. And on the harvesting section, we're saying there's a series of grants here that uh, could be made available and some loan delays uh, for harvesters who find themselves in a pinch. This is not to replace the current EI system, it, it would be a, a partner to, to current EI. And as everybody knows, uh, that's not, this is probably going to be one, one of the worst years for, for, uh, for this fishery. So we need some assistance to get through that, and uh, we just want to make sure it's done, uh, done properly. So this uh, recent um, uh, price dispute and delay was more of a symptom and not a cause. Well, let's put it this way. The FOS price killed the fishery. It, it stopped the fishery right across the province. It was that poor of a price. So what we did over the six weeks, we managed to get it at the table, as difficult as that was and, and as burdensome as that was, um, we wound up with a guarantee of 220 for the for the entire season. That wasn't there on their FOS. And uh, many harvesters know very well, had they been fishing on the FOS price, that price could have dropped to $1.80 a pound, which means what we did at the table is a, was a guarantee of $0.40 cents per pound. Pretty significant stuff. That's over $50 million over the course of a season. So that's important. That guarantee was important. The other thing we did, which is equally significant, is that, as you know, I spent a couple of months trying to negotiate a, a, a price-to-market formula for crab, which would have avoided, uh, the intention was to avoid these, these types of uh, issues. And we couldn't do it because the companies, of course, didn't want to put the money into it. So that failed. And uh, because of the bargaining, because of the tie-up, because of people's resolve and solidarity, we were able to negotiate uh, uh, just what I was looking for, it's a it's a price to market. Um, uh, it's a price to market uh, issue that spits out a price based on increases in earner barrel. So that's important and that was significant. And uh, so you know, yeah. The question is, uh, we're, are, are we better off because of that? And the answer is yes, we are, uh, because it does set uh, a good road for the future. And of course, one of the things as the premier has. Uh, 
alluded to, we intend collectively to work together this summer to ensure that we are that we wind up at some point soon with a market uh, formula for next year. So that's that's extremely important. So the trends are positive. Uh, looking forward to some good news on Thursday on Erner Barry. Might be some today, but uh, we're in a little bit better shape than we were uh, back when that FOS price came down. So you've outlined what you're looking for. Are you optimistic heading into these meetings now? Always optimistic, Linda, living in this province. You have to be. But I can tell you a couple of things. Number one, Canada is a great country. Number two, Canada has an incredible tradition of helping out prime producers. Every one of our harvesters are prime producers. They're, They're business people, whether small, medium, or large. And they bring brand new money to this province every time they the propellers turn on those boats. And that's so important. And we have a strong tradition of helping out this fishery, uh, helping out uh, workers in trouble. And in this particular case, we need that assistance to ensure that we have a future in this fishery. Because of, without that, without that, this fishery will fall to the merchants, completely fall to the merchants. That's not what we're about. And we have to ensure that that doesn't happen. So, you know, am I optimistic? Yes, I am. I'm optimistic for the future of this fishery and the people who work in it. Because, as I said, you know, three or four months ago, we we have to find a way to do business better on crab. We have to find a way to create more jobs. We have to find a way to create, to maximize the returns to harvesters. And there's a lot of work to do on that regard. And I'll I'll tell you that on the issue of, you know, provincial licensing. You know, if you have a driver's license, you have as a privilege, as a responsibility that come with it. The same should be with a processing license issued by this province. There has to be consequences for companies who behave very poorly, who who thrash fishermen, who make fishermen's harvesters' lives more difficult. There has to be consequences for that. And that's a part of the process that we'll be talking to the province on as we move forward. And, and ask can come to the table if they want. But the, the point is we need a more orderly, structured fishery uh, with, with more balances. And we certainly don't have it uh, at the present time. Are there any continued problems uh, with um, harvesters selling their catch? Yeah, there is. You're, you're playing away. Small boats, in particular, medium-sized vessels, are having a great deal of difficulty. People who are selling to uh, to uh, to Royal Greenland and some equivalent plants are, are basically out of luck. You know, people with seventy thousand pounds uh, to catch, for example, you know, small boat people have been put on five thousand pounds. I mean, we're three weeks into the fishery, and once again, ASP is dragging their heels uh, on this issue. And, this, and once again, go right back to the licensing issue I just talked about. If you can't treat harvesters any better than that, you shouldn't have a license. Why would you be given a license to do that to, to, to harvesters? So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here. And, you know, they're, they're, those processors are living a charmed life. And uh, it's time to restore some balance into this fishery. You know, people are concerned, financially concerned about the future about what they have on their quotas, what they can land. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't be dragged out. And people shouldn't have distress and strain of worrying about whether or not that particular plant is going to buy five or 6,000 pounds. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, 
you know, as promised, a, a different structure, a different way forward. But, you know, when push comes to shove, it's the same old bull from the fish merchants. You know, they push us backwards. But, you know, we've stood up to that before and we'll stand up to it again. This thing has to change for the better, for, for the workers, for the harvesters and for the province. Let's maximize what, what we do here and start doing it properly. Greg Pretty, keep us up to date on your uh, meetings in Ottawa. Really appreciate this. Always a pleasure, Linda. Thanks very much. And that is the president of the FFAW, Greg Pretty, who is heading to Ottawa tomorrow to speak with uh, various ministers and MPs about the um, need for a federal support for those affected by what uh, the union is calling the post-pandemic collapse in the snow crab fishery. Well, coming up... First Voice and the RNC have reached an agreement to form an Indigenous Advisory Committee. And uh, after the news break with Noah Shepard, we're going to hear from RNC Constable James Cadigan and First Voice Program Director Justin Campbell about what it all means and what it's all about. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Well, thanks a lot, Claudette and Noah. Well, an agreement has been reached between the RNC and First Voice to form an Indigenous Advisory Committee. Media Relations Officer with the RNC, Constable James Cadigan, and First Voice Program Director Justin Campbell spoke with reporters earlier today about the committee. VOCM's Richard Duggan was there. Here's some of what was said. The Rural Newfoundland Constabulary and St. John's-based Urban Indigenous Coalition, First Voice, have reached an agreement to form an Indigenous Advisory Committee. The RNC Indigenous Advisory Committee will include representation from the RNC, First Voice, and other Indigenous governments and organizations from across the province. The committee will seek to address historical and current harms through an open and honest approach guided by respect and understanding. The committee will recommend ways and means of improving the relationship between the RNC and Indigenous communities by providing guidance to the police service on how to best advance truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in a way that is consistent with the calls for justice of the National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Some of the objectives placed at the forefront of this initiative are advancing the Section 9 calls for justice of the National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, increasing cultural awareness and sensitivity of RNC officers respecting Indigenous communities, promoting the recruitment of members of Indigenous communities as RNC police officers, and removing systemic barriers to the fair and equal treatment of members of Indigenous communities within police services stemming from the colonial history of Canada. The RNC and First Voice recognize that building mutual trust and understanding between the police service and Indigenous peoples in Newfoundland and Labrador will take time. Both organizations are committed to advancing that goal by moving forward together in a spirit of reconciliation and partnership. Now I will uh, welcome 
Program Director, First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition, Justin Campbell, for bring remarks. In early October last year, the First Voice Working Group on Police Oversight released its final report. Entitled Building Trust, Restoring Confidence, our report documented many problems in how policing is carried out in Newfoundland and Labrador. We were very clear that policing can and must be improved. With that goal in mind, we put forward 26 comprehensive recommendations for change. All of these recommendations center on a single basic idea, that effective policing depends on building and maintaining trust between police services and the public they are meant to serve. Since then, First Voice and the RNC have been engaged in ongoing conversations about how best to strengthen the public's trust in policing within the context of the MMIWG calls for justice. These conversations have sometimes been challenging. We have not always agreed with each other, um, but we have learned a great deal from each other as a result of those conversations. And most importantly of all, we have remained committed to continuing the dialogue. The establishment of an Indigenous Advisory Committee formalizes the process that we've built together. It also expands that process to make it more fully inclusive of all Indigenous groups and organizations in the province. We know that some members of Indigenous communities may be skeptical about today's announcement. First Voice understands your skepticism, but we assure you that our participation depends on this committee being fully transparent and accountable to Indigenous people. The committee's terms of reference will be shared publicly and it will meet bi-monthly and report publicly on its progress semi-annually. Ultimately, you get to be the judge on whether the committee is building trust and confidence in policing. We also want to be clear that an advisory committee is no substitute for a civilian-led police oversight board, one that is empowered by law to provide comprehensive, proactive, high-level policy direction to police. First Voice remains firm in our position that the provincial government must implement systemic legislative changes to restore confidence in policing over the longer term. We recognize that in an advisory committee will not solve all of the problems that we identified in building trust, restoring confidence. The committee's scope by definition will be limited by powers that the province grants to the RNC under the RNC Act. But the advisory committee does provide a new form for indigenous voices to be heard and it's one that didn't exist yesterday. The National Inquiry called the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls a national emergency. There is no time to waste. First Voice will pursue every avenue for advancing the MMIWG calls for justice, including through the Indigenous Advisory Committee that we are announcing today. We will remain engaged in the process that we have built with the RNC for as long as we remain confident that it will help to drive meaningful change. We invite all Indigenous organizations and governments in the province to join us in that endeavor. So that is First Voice Program Director Justin Campbell and RNC Constable James Cadigan, sorry, um, who were uh, speaking with reporters today on this new agreement reached uh, between the RNC and First Voice to form an Indigenous Advisory Committee. And if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the City of St. John's this week unveiled its $20 million master plan for year shared use paths, linking the network from east to west and north to south and includes a major change to a section of Elizabeth Avenue, a major east-to-west connecting route. A three-meter paved trail will be installed to, on the university side of the street from Allendale Road to uh, Peyton Street. Other projects include a paved route from Airport Heights to Paul Reynolds Centre via Torbay Road and Penny Crescent, a connect, uh, connection along Columbus Drive from Canada Drive and across Waterford Bridge Road to connect to the trailway in Bowering Park, and a paved trail from Logie Bay Road to Portugal 
Cove Road through Tupper Laurier Park. A section of Kellysbrook Path is also going to be paved. Councillor Ian Froud spoke with reporters, including VOCM's Brian Medor, at City Hall yesterday. This is incredibly important because it so it helps us act on a number of the goals we have as a city and it helps us create a city that's healthier to live in. Uh, people can move around by their own power. They don't have to be in a vehicle. If they can do that safely um, and conveniently, it, uh, it increases wellness. It allows people to save significant money on whether it's gasoline or full-on not owning a vehicle. So if you can get around on bike, on foot, or in your wheelchair, whether it's in your neighborhood or across the city as a whole, that enables you to live a healthier life and live, a more, live more affordably in the city. There was a lot of opposition when the Kellysbrook uh, announcement was made from uh, joggers specifically. Uh, have there been any changes to what's going to happen at Kellysbrook uh, since last year? There are some small root changes to... Uh, to reduce the number of trees and uh, that would need to be cut down in, in a couple of areas um, but it is it is the goal is and the plan is to connect Columbus Drive to Kingsbridge Road um, this has broad benefit for many people in the city and I know I know there are some there as as with any project there are there are trade-offs you make I believe this is the best solution for the widest number of people in the city so that they can they can move around in a way that uh, makes sense to them Sure, yeah. So over the next month or so, we have uh, engagement sessions. People can submit through online or participate in the neighborhood session or a virtual session, or they can call 311 and provide input. The intent, there is, this is a genuine consultation process. There are choices to be made within. So choices on, on route selection. There's a few choices in a, on a couple of the projects. And then there's feedback we want on, okay, where do you want rest stations, where do you want benches, where is lighting needed? So those, those are the types of things that we want to hear from people. So that's Ian Frau talking about this new shared use uh, path uh, connecting all ends of the capital city anyway, and I know you're a big user of the um, trailway in CBS, yes. Claudette. so like when I was listening to that story, I thought, gosh, you know, there's so many places I still have yet to explore, and if they expand that, I mean, I'm just going to have a great season. I mean, I, I think it's really important that something like that is uh, is available. Whether or not, though, it helps in terms of like fuel, like reducing fuel emissions, I'm not sure because we kind of live in a hilly city, and most people, I would suspect, don't bike to work. But you know, I'm, I'm happy about the trailway. Well, I mean, I guess for cyclists in particular, it, it's a big boon because let's be honest, uh, how many people honestly want to cycle up? Kemet Road, for instance. I know. Unless you have an e-bike and have some sort of an assist, but still, that that's tough. But I'm thinking in terms of just the, how busy the road has become right. and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and it's not good mentally either. It's a big difference, even for walkers. Like, yeah. if you had a choice, even my friends and I always say that, like, you know, where would you like to walk? Trailway, you know, because you don't get that mental release when you're traveling next and hearing all of the, the traffic. Traffic, and you're part of that whole Yeah, it's, it's not good for the mind, yeah. even, and safety, as you probably would have mentioned. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it remains to be seen. These trailways, of course, are going to be paved. So, I mean, that adds to cutting right. down trees and removing some of that stuff. And, of course, pavement creates heat and all yep. of those. It retains heat, I should say. So, anyway, it's one thing over another thing. But uh, anything that makes this region anyway a little more pedestrian and friendly. bicycle friendly because we need to be healthier yeah i mean that's just one way to do it yeah
and to get from one place to another instead of saying oh i gotta get in the car now and drive it yeah it's instead of just making a dart like we used to say right yeah and you know being take a dart up the hill now and get (laughs) your bread but and you know sometimes i feel that some pedestrians are against cyclists and cyclists are against pedestrians but doing both like i've been a pedestrian on these trailways and a cyclist it's just a matter of being courtesy to both and and understanding that uh cyclists deserve to be there too and pedestrians deserve to be too mm-hmm. there's ways that you can be um it, it's i could just go on and on linda because <laughs> i know i've been on a bike <laughs> and i try to be courteous and ring my bell and some people some pedestrians have stopped me and thanked me for doing that uh, but i've also witnessed as a cyclist not going very fast some pedestrians purposely trying to block you you know like just yeah, two or three, you know, going across, uh, talking to their friend. They know you're coming, you ring the bell, but they feel that they have more of a right so that they will just. Ooh, interesting. So I know that both. this is controversial it in is. some yeah. uh, circles, right? Some people don't want you on, on the trailway, but there are reasons why people cycle and there are reasons why people walk and it could be a health thing too. So don't judge. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> well, coming up, the president of the Registered Nurses Union has received some recognition from her peers and we'll have a chat with Yvette Coffey coming up right after this. This is News Talk. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, Registered Nurses Union President Yvette Coffey has been recognized with a special award at the Canadian Federation of Nurses Union's Biennial Convention in Prince Edward Island. Coffey was presented with the Bread and Roses Award for leading her membership through what's being called two of the most tumultuous years in the history of Canada's nursing profession. And we have Yvette Coffey on the line now from PEI. Hello and congratulations. Hi, Linda. Thanks. I know you don't get into these types of roles. A lot of people who are in leadership roles like your own, you don't do it for the accolades, but it must feel pretty good. Um, It's pretty humbling, actually. Um, I'm so pleased to accept this award and proud of the work that I've been able to accomplish with the help of my incredible team of staff, volunteers, board members, and especially our members. So the uh, um, uh, Linda Silas and uh, others, uh, and, and, you know, re- remark on some of the accomplishments that you have uh, made over the last little while, including the increase in seats at the schools of nursing here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the uh, creation of a new government office for health professional recruitment and retention. What are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of. Um Getting government and employers to actually sit down in a nursing think tank and listen to our frontline members, the people who are holding our system together every single day, and to hear from them what's really happening on the ground and what needs to happen, because they are the people with the solutions. They're the ones who know what needs to be done in order to address the shortage And our biggest concern and our biggest issue and, you know, government leaders and employers have now acknowledged is the retention. We cannot afford to lose one more single nurse out of our healthcare system because the people of Newfoundland and Labrador depend on us. 
it's been a tough go. You and I have discussed this at length numerous times, you know, through COVID and now the post-COVID period. But the challenges remain. Um, are you more optimistic now than you have been in the past? Uh, you know, where do you think everything is going right now? Well, right now, um, we're at a precarious point in time. We're at the bargaining table. Um, and our big focus is on retention, retention, retention. That's something I've been saying loud and clear. We're seeing agency nurses paid double the or triple the amount that our nurses are being paid working alongside of our members. And it is very, very divisive in the workplaces and causing great angst amongst our members. And so it should. Uh, when, you know, government had given them double time for overtime to fill gaps in schedules with the 750 vacancies and then pulled it back um, as of January 31st, and it was helping. Um, We need a collective agreement that shows registered nurses and nurse practitioners that they're valued, that they're respected, um, and that they're listening and willing to keep working with us, which they have been, we're not going to fix everything in the healthcare system overnight. It didn't take uh, one day or one week or one month to get where we are today with 750 vacancies. And even once this collective agreement gets signed, we are still going to be out there pushing for the retention of registered nurses, nurse practitioners, and all other healthcare providers, um, nursing, allied health, physicians, and the list goes on because it's a team that keeps this healthcare system going. And through COVID and the shortages, everybody is still working as a team and holding this system together. So uh, what what's uh, up for discussion now at the National Convention? Uh, so the National Convention, we're talking about the nursing shortage, not only provincially, nationally, and globally, but what needs to be done. And I will say I'm honored to be meeting with the federal chief nurse next week as a representative of Atlantic Canada to actually talk about what needs to be done. And it's working on retention. We cannot afford to be continuing to pay these high premiums to agency, private agency nurses. Private companies are profiting off of the healthcare system in our country, and that has to stop. Yvette Coffey, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day, and uh, once again, congratulations on the recognition. Thank you so much, Linda. And that's Yvette Coffey, uh, who was uh, presented with the Bread and Roses Award for leading her membership through what the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions calls two of the most tumultuous years in the history of Canada's nursing profession. Well, Veterans Ombud, a retired Colonel Nishik. Nishika Jardine is in the province to hear directly from veterans and their families about issues of concern to them. I spoke with her earlier today. Well, retired Colonel uh, Nishika Jardine, welcome to Newfoundland and Labrador. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell us what your what your purpose is here today. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, I'm the Veterans Ombudsman, or Ombud, and uh, we are here to do what we call outreach. So I think there's lots of people, a lot of veterans, who don't know uh, of the existence of our office. And uh, so we're out to to share with folks what it is that we do, and and more, more importantly, to hear what their concerns are with Veterans Affairs Canada. So what kind of issues does your uh, office typically deal with? 
Yeah, so um, if you're a client of Veterans Affairs, uh, you may be a veteran, you may be a family member or a, a widow or widower, um, or you might even be a serving member in the Canadian Forces or the RCMP. And if you've um, got an answer from Veterans Affairs about a program or benefit that you're applying for and you're not happy with the, uh, with the answer that you got, you can complain to our office, which is the most important thing that we do. And um, so, you know, we can't do anything about the disability claims themselves. If you get an answer, if you get told no there, then you've got to go to the Veterans Review and Appeal Board. But, but once you've got a disability claim, and let's say you, you've got treatment benefits that come with that, if um, you've applied for a particular treatment that your doctor's recommending and uh, Veterans Affairs says, uh, no, uh, we're not going to cover that, then you can, you can call and complain to our office. That's just like one example. But um, pretty much anything except for the disability claim itself, you can, uh, you can come and complain to us and we'll look into it. And uh, we look to see whether you were treated fairly or not. Do the types of issues that have come to you, um, have they changed over time or, or do they remain relatively constant? Yes, I've only been the ombud for about two and a half years. I was appointed in November 2020. Um, but I think it's pretty much, uh, you know, the same sort of, you know, big picture kind of things like the treatment benefits or other programs and that kind of thing. As the programs change, of course, um, then the, the complaints will change around that. But it's really um, all of the programs and benefits that uh, the Veterans Affairs offers. Um, if, uh, if somebody isn't happy with the answer that they got from the department, then, then they can give us a call. So you have two sessions now in the province. Uh, one today in St. John's, another, is it tomorrow in Gander, is that correct? Uh, I think we're doing it Thursday night in Gander. Um, I believe it's at the Albatross Hotel in Gander, and tonight uh, we're here at, uh, at the Delta. So what are you uh, asking people uh, who might uh, have these interactions with Veterans Affairs? What are you asking them to do uh, to come out when, when they come out to see you? Oh, well, uh, not much. We're just, uh, we're, we're going to give them, I'll give them a, a presentation about what it is that our office does uh, really short. I'll talk a bit about um, some of the concerns that I see uh, with Veterans Affairs and the way they uh, they deliver their programs and stuff to, to veterans, et cetera. And then, um, then I want to hear from them. Uh, and, you know, people, we've been doing these uh, town halls now. Uh, we've been coast to coast literally now. Um, people will, uh, they're not shy. They'll stand up and they'll tell us, you know, what it is that, uh, that's bothering them or what their concerns are. And we learn so much from hearing from, uh, from folks uh, directly uh, what, what it is that's frustrating them about, uh, about getting programs and benefits from, from Veterans Affairs. I suppose, yes, there must be value in that rather than getting an email or some kind of a standard form ticked off. It's much easier when you see and feel and hear what they have to say. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely, it is so much better to hear directly from people. That's why we're we're taking the time to travel around and uh, to get to meet people. We learn just so much in conversation, you know, um, hearing uh, hearing people's opinions and their view on something and how they felt about something. It's uh, that kind of insight is uh, is invaluable to me as I try to do uh, the best job I can for veterans. And um, I, you just can't substitute, you know, emails or forms or that kind of thing. And you've been there. I have indeed. I have indeed. I am myself a client of, uh, of Veterans Affairs. So Anishika Jardine, uh, once again, when and where? 
show this evening at the Delta Hotel at 7 p.m. and on Thursday evening in Gander at the Albatross Hotel at 7 p.m. as well. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. And once again, Jardine will meet with clients of Veterans Affairs tonight from 7 to 9 at the uh, St. John's Convention Centre, the Delta. And again on Thursday evening at the Albatross in Gander, again, 7 to 9 p.m. Well, that's it for us, uh, Claudette. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, a big thank you for Greg for stepping in suddenly for me yesterday. Really appreciate that. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. So do join us then. Uh, Stay safe, everyone.